Book Two, Chapter Five of On War. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. On War by Karl von Clausewitz, translated by Colonel J. J. Graham. Chapter Five, Criticism. The influence of theoretical principles upon real life is produced more through criticism than through doctrine, for as criticism is an application of abstract truth to real events, therefore it not only brings truth of this description nearer to life, but also accustoms the understanding more to such truths by the constant repetition of their application. We therefore think it necessary to fix the point of view for criticism next to that for theory. From the simple narration of any historical occurrence which places events in chronological order, or at most only touches on their more immediate causes, we separate the critical. In this critical, three different operations of the mind may be observed. First, the historical investigation and determining of doubtful facts. This is properly historical research, and has nothing in common with theory. Secondly, the tracing of effects to causes. This is the real critical inquiry. It is indispensable to theory for everything in which theory is to be established, supported, or even merely explained by experience can only be settled in this way. Thirdly, the testing of the means employed. This is criticism, properly speaking, in which praise and censure is contained. This is where theory helps history, or rather, the teaching to be derived from it. In these two last, strictly critical parts of historical study, all depends on tracing things to their primary elements, that is to say, up to undoubted truths, and not, as is so often done, resting halfway, that is, on some arbitrary assumption or supposition. As respects the tracing of effect to cause, that is often attended with the insuperable difficulty that the real causes are not known. In none of the relations of life does this so frequently happen as in war, where events are seldom fully known and still less motives as the latter have been perhaps purposely concealed by the chief actor or have been of such a transient and accidental character that they have been lost for history for this reason critical narration must generally proceed hand in hand with historical investigation and still such a want of connection between cause and effect will often present itself that it does not seem justifiable to consider effects as the necessary results of known causes here therefore must occur that is historical results which cannot be made use of for teaching all that theory can demand is that the investigation should be rigidly conducted up to that point and there leave off without drawing conclusions a real evil springs up only if the known is made perforce to suffice as an explanation of effects and thus a false importance is ascribed to it besides this difficulty critical inquiry also meets with another great and intrinsic one which is that the progress of events in war seldom proceeds from one simple cause, but from several in common, and that it therefore is not sufficient to follow up a series of events to their origin in a candid and impartial spirit, but that it is then also necessary to apportion to each contributing cause its due weight. This leads therefore to a closer investigation of their nature, and thus a critical investigation may lead into what is the proper field of theory. The critical consideration, that is, the testing of the means, leads to the question, which are the effects peculiar to the means applied, and whether these effects were comprehended in the plans of the person directing. The effects peculiar to the means 
lead to the investigation of their nature and thus again into the field of theory we have already seen that in criticism all depends upon attaining to positive truth therefore that we must not stop at arbitrary propositions which are not allowed by others and to which other perhaps equally arbitrary assertions may again be opposed so that there is no end to pros and cons the whole is without result and therefore without instruction we have seen that both the search for causes and the examination of means lead into the field of theory that is into the field of universal truth which does not proceed solely from the case immediately under examination if there is a theory which can be used then the critical consideration will appeal to the proofs there afforded and the examination may there stop but where no such theoretical truth is to be found the inquiry must be pushed up to the original elements if this necessity occurs often it must lead the historian according to a common expression into a labyrinth of details he then has his hands full and it is impossible for him to stop to give the requisite attention everywhere the consequence is that in order to set bounds to his investigation he adopts some arbitrary assumptions which if they do not appear so to him do so to others as they are not evident in themselves or capable of proof a sound theory is therefore an essential foundation for criticism and it is impossible for it without the assistance of a sensible theory to attain to that point at which it commences chiefly to be instructive that is where it becomes demonstration both convincing and sans replique but it would be a visionary hope to believe in the possibility of a theory applicable to every abstract truth leaving nothing for criticism to do but place the case under its appropriate law it would be ridiculous pedantry to lay down as a rule for criticism that it must always halt and turn round on reaching the boundaries of sacred theory the same spirit of analytical inquiry which is the origin of theory must also guide the critic in his work and it can and must therefore happen that he strays beyond the boundaries of the province of theory and elucidates those points with which he is more particularly concerned it is more likely on the contrary that criticism would completely fail in its object if it degenerated into a mechanical application of theory all positive results of theoretical inquiry all principles rules and methods are the more wanting in generality and positive truth the more they become positive doctrine they exist to offer themselves for use as required and it must always be left for judgment to decide whether they are suitable or not such results of theory must never be used in criticism as rules or norms for a standard but in the same way as the person acting should use them that is merely as aids to judgment if it is an acknowledged principle in tactics that in the usual order of battle cavalry should be placed behind infantry not in line with it still it would be folly on this account to condemn every deviation from this principle criticism must investigate the grounds of the deviation and it is only in case these are insufficient that it has a right to appeal to the principles laid down in theory if it is further established in theory that a divided attack diminishes the probability of success still it would be just as unreasonable whenever there is a divided attack and an unsuccessful issue to regard the latter as the result of the former without further investigation into the connection between the two as where a divided attack is successful to infer from it the fallacy of the theoretical principle the spirit of investigation which belongs to criticism cannot allow either criticism therefore supports itself chiefly on the results of the analytical investigation of theory what has been made out and determined by theory does not require to be demonstrated over again by criticism and it is so determined by theory that criticism may find it readily demonstrated this office of criticism of examining the effect produced by certain causes and whether a means applied has answered its object 
will be easy enough if cause and effect means and end are all near together if an army is surprised and therefore cannot make a regular and intelligent use of its powers and resources then the effect of the surprise is not doubtful if theory has determined that in a battle the convergent form of attack is calculated to produce greater but less certain results then the question is whether he who employs that convergent form had in view chiefly that greatness of result as his object if so the proper means were chosen but if by this form he intended to make the result more certain and that expectation was founded not on some exceptional circumstances in this case but on the general nature of the convergent form as has happened a hundred times then he mistook the nature of the means and committed an error here the work of military investigation and criticism is easy and it will always be so when confined to the immediate effects and objects this can be done quite at option if we abstract the connection of the parts with the whole and only look at the things in that relation but in war as generally in the world there is a connection between everything which belongs to a whole and therefore however small a cause may be in itself its effects reach to the end of the act of warfare and modify or influence the final result in some degree let that degree be ever so small in the same manner every means must be felt up to the ultimate object we can therefore trace the effects of a cause as long as events are worth noticing and in the same way we must not stop at the testing of a means for the immediate object but test also this object as a means to a higher one and thus ascend the series of facts in succession until we come to one so absolutely necessary in its nature as to require no examinational proof in many cases particularly in what concerns great and decisive measures the investigation must be carried to the final aim to that which leads immediately to peace it is evident that in thus ascending at every new station which we reach a new point of view for the judgment is attained so that the same means which appeared advisable at one station when looked at from the next above it may have to be rejected the search for the causes of events and the comparison of means with ends must always go hand in hand in the critical review of an act for the investigation of causes leads us first to the discovery of those things which are worth examining this following of the clue up and down is attended with considerable difficulty for the farther from an event the cause lies which we are looking for the greater must be the number of other causes which must at the same time be kept in view and allowed for in reference to the share which they have in the course of events and then eliminated because the higher the importance of a fact the greater will be the number of separate forces and circumstances by which it is conditioned if we have unravelled the causes of a battle being lost we have certainly also ascertained a part of the causes of the consequences which this defeat has upon the whole war but only a part because the effects of other causes more or less according to circumstances will flow into the final result the same multiplicity of circumstances is presented also in the examination of the means the higher our point of view for the higher the object is situated the greater must be the number of means employed to reach it the ultimate object of war is the object aimed at by all the armies simultaneously and it is therefore necessary that the consideration should embrace all that each has done or could have done it is obvious that this may sometimes lead to a wide field of inquiry in which it is easy to wander and lose the way and in which this difficulty prevails that a number of assumptions or suppositions must be made about a variety of things which do not actually appear but which in all probability did take place and therefore cannot possibly be left out of consideration 
when bonaparte in seventeen ninety seven at the head of the army of italy advanced from the tagliamento against the archduke charles he did so with a view to force that general to a decisive action before the reinforcements expected from the rhine had reached him if we look only at the immediate object the means were well chosen and justified by the result for the archduke was so inferior in numbers that he only made a show of resistance on the tagliamento and when he saw his adversary so strong and resolute yielded ground and left open the passages of the norican alps now to what use could bonaparte turn this fortunate event to penetrate into the heart of the austrian empire itself to facilitate the advance of the rhine armies under Miro and hoch and open communication with them this was the view taken by bonaparte and from this point of view he was right but now if criticism places itself at a higher point of view namely that of the french directory which body could see and know that the armies of the rhine could not commence the campaign for six weeks then the advance of bonaparte over the norican alps can only be regarded as an extremely hazardous measure for if the austrians had drawn largely on their rhine armies to reinforce their army in styria so as to enable the archduke to fall upon the army of italy not only would that army have been routed but the whole campaign lost this consideration which attracted the serious attention of bonaparte at villach no doubt induced him to sign the armistice of leoben with so much readiness if criticism takes a still higher position and if it knows that the austrians had no reserves between the army of the archduke charles and vienna then we see that vienna became threatened by the advance of the army of italy supposing that bonaparte knew that the capital was thus uncovered and knew that he still retained the same superiority in numbers over the archduke as he had in styria then his advance against the heart of the austrian states was no longer without purpose and its value depended on the value which the austrians might place on preserving their capital if that was so great that rather than lose it they would accept the conditions of peace which bonaparte was ready to offer them it became an object of the first importance to threaten vienna if bonaparte had any reason to know this then criticism may stop there but if this point was only problematical then criticism must take a still higher position and ask what would have followed if the austrians had resolved to abandon vienna and retire further into the vast dominion still left to them but it is easy to see that this question cannot be answered without bringing into the consideration the probable movements of the rhine armies on both sides through the decided superiority of numbers on the side of the french a hundred and thirty thousand to eighty thousand there could be little doubt of the result but then next arises the question what use would the directory make of a victory whether they would follow up their success to the opposite frontiers of the austrian monarchy therefore to the complete breaking up or overthrow of that power or whether they would be satisfied with the conquest of a considerable portion to serve as a security for peace the probable result in each case must be estimated in order to come to a conclusion as to the probable determination of the directory supposing the result of these considerations to be that the french forces were much too weak for the complete subjugation of the austrian monarchy so that the attempt might completely reverse the respective positions of the contending armies and that even the conquest and occupation of a considerable district of country would place the french army in strategic relations to which they were not equal then that result must naturally influence the estimate of the position of the army of italy and compel it to lower its expectations and this it was which no doubt influenced bonaparte although fully aware of the helpless condition of the archduke still to sign the peace of campo formio 
which imposed no greater sacrifices on the austrians than the loss of provinces which even if the campaign took the most favourable turn for them they could not have reconquered but the french could not have reckoned on even the moderate treaty of campo formio and therefore it could not have been their object in making their bold advance if two considerations had not presented themselves to their view the first of which consisted in the question what degree of value the austrians would attach to each of the above-mentioned results whether notwithstanding the probability of a satisfactory result in either of these cases would it be worth while to make the sacrifices inseparable from a continuance of the war when they could be spared those sacrifices by a peace on terms not too humiliating the second consideration is the question whether the Austrian government, instead of seriously weighing the possible results of a resistance push to extremities, would not prove completely disheartened by the impression of their present reverses. The consideration which forms the subject of the first is no idle piece of subtle argument, but a consideration of such decidedly practical importance that it comes up whenever the plan of pushing war to its utmost extremity is mooted and by its weight in most cases restrains the execution of such plans the second consideration is of equal importance for we do not make war with an abstraction but with a reality which we must always keep in view and we may be sure that it was not overlooked by the bold bonaparte that is that he was keenly alive to the terror which the appearance of his sword inspired it was reliance on that which led him to moscow there it led him into a scrape the terror of him had been weakened by the gigantic struggles in which he had been engaged in the year seven ninety seven it was still fresh and the secret of a resistance pushed to extremities had not been discovered nevertheless even in seventeen ninety seven his boldness might have led to a negative result if as already said he had not with a sort of presentiment avoided it by signing the moderate peace of campo formio we must now bring these considerations to a close they will suffice to show the wide sphere the diversity and embarrassing nature of the subjects embraced in a critical examination carried to the fullest extent that is to those measures of a great and decisive class which must necessarily be included it follows from them that besides a theoretical acquaintance with the subject natural talent must also have a great influence on the value of critical examinations for it rests chiefly with the latter to throw the requisite light on the interrelations of things and to distinguish from amongst the endless connections of events those which are really essential but talent is also called into requisition in another way critical examination is not merely the appreciation of those means which have been actually employed but also of all possible means which therefore must be suggested in the first place that is must be discovered and the use of any particular means is not fairly open to censure until a better is pointed out now however small the number of possible combinations may be in most cases still it must be admitted that to point out those which have not been used is not a mere analysis of actual things but a spontaneous creation which cannot be prescribed and depends on the fertility of genius we are far from seeing a field for great genius in a case which admits only of the application of a few simple combinations and we think it exceedingly ridiculous to hold up as is often done the turning of a position as an invention showing the highest genius still nevertheless this creative self-activity on the part of the critic is necessary and it is one of those points which essentially determine the value of critical examination when bonaparte on the thirtieth of july seventeen ninety six determined to raise the siege of mantua in order to march with his whole force against the enemy advancing in separate columns to the relief of the place and to beat them in detail 
this appeared the surest way to the attainment of brilliant victories. These victories actually followed, and were afterwards again repeated on a still more brilliant scale, on the attempt to relieve the fortress being again renewed. We hear only one opinion on these achievements, that of unmixed admiration. At the same time, Bonaparte could not have adopted this course on the 30th of July, without quite giving up on the idea of the siege of Mantua, because it was impossible to save the siege train, and it could not be replaced by another in this campaign. In fact, the siege was converted into a blockade, and the town, which if the siege had continued, must have very shortly fallen, held out for six months in spite of Bonaparte's victories in the open field. Criticism has generally regarded this as an evil that was unavoidable, because critics have not been able to suggest any better course. Resistance to a relieving army within lines of circumvallation had fallen into such disrepute and contempt that it appears to have entirely escaped consideration as a means. And yet in the reign of Louis the Fourteenth, that measure was so often used with success that we can only attribute to the force of fashion the fact that a hundred years later it never occurred to any one even to propose such a measure. If the practicability of such a plan had ever been entertained for a moment, a closer consideration of circumstances would have shown that forty thousand of the best infantry in the world under Bonaparte, behind strong lines of circumvallation around Mantua, had so little to fear from the fifty thousand men coming to relief under Wormser that it was very unlikely that any attempt even would have been made upon their lines. We shall not seek here to establish this point, but we believe enough has been said to show that this means was one which had a right to a share of consideration. Whether Bonaparte himself ever thought of such a plan, we leave undecided. Neither in his memoirs nor in any other sources is there any trace to be found of his having done so. In no critical works has it been touched upon, the measure being one which the mind had lost sight of. The merit of resuscitating the idea of this means is not great, for it suggests itself at once to any one who breaks loose from the trammels of fashion. Still, it is necessary that it should suggest itself for us to bring it into consideration and compare it with the means which Bonaparte employed. Whatever may be the result of the comparison, it is one which should not be omitted by criticism. When Bonaparte, in February 1814, after gaining the battles at Etoges, Champer Bay, and Montmeral, left Blücher's army and, turning upon Schwarzenberg, beat his troops at Montereau and Mormant, everyone was filled with admiration, because Bonaparte, by thus throwing his concentrated force first upon one opponent, then upon another, made a brilliant use of the mistakes which his adversaries had committed in dividing their forces. If these brilliant strokes in different directions failed to save him, it was generally considered to be no fault of his at least. No one has yet asked the question, what would have been the result if, instead of turning from Blücher upon Schwarzenberg, he had tried another blow at Blücher and pursued him to the Rhine? We are convinced that it would have completely changed the course of the campaign, and that the army of the Allies, instead of marching to Paris, would have retired behind the Rhine. We do not ask others to share our conviction, but no one who understands the thing will doubt, at the mere mention of this alternative course, that it is one which should not be overlooked in criticism. In this case, the means of comparison lie much more on the surface than in the foregoing, but they have been equally overlooked, because one-sided views have prevailed, and there has been no freedom of judgment. From the necessity of pointing out a better means, which might have been used in place of those which are condemned, has arisen the form of criticism almost exclusively in use. 
which contents itself with pointing out the better means without demonstrating in what the superiority consists the consequence is that some are not convinced that others start up and do the same thing and that thus discussion arises which is without any fixed basis for the argument military literature abounds with matter of this sort the demonstration we require is always necessary when the superiority of means propounded is not so evident as to leave no room for doubt and consists in examination of each of the means on its own merits and then of its comparison with the object desired when once the thing is traced back to a simple truth controversy must cease or at all events a new result is obtained whilst by the other plan the pros and cons go on for ever consuming each other should we for example not rest content with assertion in the case before mentioned and wish to prove that the persistent pursuit of blucher would have been more advantageous than turning upon schwarzenberg we should support the arguments on the following simple truths one in general it is more advantageous to continue our blows in one and the same direction because there is a loss of time in striking in different directions and at a point where the moral power is already shaken by considerable losses there is the more reason to expect fresh successes therefore in that way no part of the preponderance already gained is left idle two because blucher although weaker than schwarzenberg was on account of his enterprising spirit the more important adversary in him therefore lay the centre of attraction which drew the others along in the same direction three because the losses which blucher had sustained almost amounted to a defeat which gave bonaparte such a preponderance over him as to make his retreat to the rhine almost certain and at the same time no reserves of any consequence awaited him there four because there was no other result which would be so terrific in its aspects which would appear to the imagination in such gigantic proportions an immense advantage in dealing with a staff so weak and irresolute as that of schwarzenberg notoriously was at this time what had happened to the crown prince of wartenberg at montereau and to count wittgenstein at mormat prince schwarzenberg must have known well enough but all the untoward events on blucher's distant and separate line from the marne to the rhine would only reach him by the avalanche of rumour the desperate movements which bonaparte made upon vitry at the end of march to see what the allies would do if he threatened to turn them strategically were evidently done on the principle of working on their fears but it was done under far different circumstances in consequence of his defeat at leon and arcas and because blucher with a hundred thousand men was then in communication with schwarzenberg there are people no doubt who will not be convinced by these arguments but at all events they cannot retort by saying that whilst bonaparte threatened schwarzenberg's base by advancing to the rhine schwarzenberg at the same time threatened bonaparte's communications with paris because we have shown by the reasons above given that schwarzenberg would never have thought of marching on paris with respect to the example quoted by us from the campaign of seventeen ninety six we should say bonaparte looked upon the plan he adopted as the surest means of beating the austrians but admitting that it was so still the object to be attained was only an empty victory which could have hardly any sensible influence on the fall of mantua the way which we should have chosen would in our opinion have been much more certain to prevent the relief of mantua but even if we place ourselves in the position of the french general and assume that it was not so and look upon the certainty of success to having been less the question then amounts to a choice between a more certain but less useful and therefore less important victory on the one hand and a somewhat less probable but far more decisive and important victory on the other hand presented in this form boldness must have declared for the second solution which is the reverse of what took place 
when the thing was only superficially viewed bonaparte was certainly anything but deficient in boldness and we may be sure that he did not see the whole case and its consequences as fully and clearly as we can at the present time naturally the critic in treating of the means must often appeal to military history as experience is of more value in the art of war than all philosophical truth but this exemplification from history is subject to certain conditions of which we shall treat in a special chapter and unfortunately these conditions are so seldom regarded that reference to history generally only serves to increase the confusion of ideas we have still a most important subject to consider which is how far criticism in passing judgments on particular events is permitted or in duty bound to make use of its wider view of things and therefore also of that which is shown by results or when and where it should leave out sight of these things in order to place itself as far as possible in the exact position of the chief actor if criticism dispenses praise or censure it should seek to place itself as nearly as possible at the same point of view as the person acting that is to say to collect all he knew and all the motives on which he acted and on the other hand to leave out of the consideration all that the person acting could not or did not know and above all the result but this is only an object to aim at which can never be reached because the state of circumstances from which an event proceeded can never be placed before the eye of the critic exactly as it lay before the eye of the person acting a number of inferior circumstances which must have influenced the result are completely lost to sight and many a subjective motive has never come to light the latter can only be learned from the memoirs of the chief actor or from his intimate friends and in such things of this kind are often treated of in a very dulcetary manner or purposely misrepresented criticism must therefore always forego much which was present in the minds of those whose acts are criticised on the other hand it is much more difficult to leave out of sight that which criticism knows in excess this is only easy as regards accidental circumstances that is circumstances which have been mixed up but are in no way necessarily related but it is very difficult and in fact can never be completely done with regard to things really essential let us take first the result if it has not proceeded from accidental circumstances it is almost impossible that the knowledge of it should not have an effect on the judgment passed on events which have preceded it for we see these things in the light of the result and it is to a certain extent by it that we first become acquainted with them and appreciate them military history with all its events is a source of instruction for criticism itself and it is only natural that criticism should throw that light on things which it has itself obtained from the consideration of the whole if therefore it might wish in some cases to leave the result out of the consideration it would be impossible to do so completely but it is not only in relation to the result that is what takes place at the last that this embarrassment arises the same occurs in relation to preceding events therefore with the data which furnished the motives to action criticism has before it in most cases more information on this point than the principle in the transaction now it may seem easy to dismiss from the consideration everything of this nature but it is not so easy as we may think the knowledge of preceding and concurrent events is founded not only on certain information but on a number of conjectures and suppositions indeed there is hardly any of the information respecting things not purely accidental which has not been preceded by suppositions or conjectures destined to take the place of certain information in case such should never be supplied now it is conceivable that criticism in after times which has before it as facts all the preceding and concurrent circumstances 
should not allow itself to be thereby influenced when it asks itself the question what portion of the circumstances which at the moment of action were unknown would it have held to be probable we maintain that in this case as in the case of the results and for the same reason it is impossible to disregard all these things completely if therefore the critic wishes to bestow praise or blame upon a single act he can only succeed to a certain degree by placing himself in the position of the person whose act he has under review in many cases he can do so sufficiently near for any practical purpose but in many instances it is the very reverse and this fact should never be overlooked but it is neither necessary nor desirable that criticism should completely identify itself with the person acting in war as in all matters of skill there is a certain natural aptitude required which is called talent this may be great or small in the first case it may easily be superior to that of the critic for what critic can pretend to the skill of a frederick or a bonaparte therefore if criticism is not to abstain altogether from offering an opinion where eminent talent is concerned it must be allowed to make use of the advantage which its enlarged horizon affords criticism must not therefore treat the solution of a problem by a great general like a sum in arithmetic it is only through the results and through the exact coincidences of events that it can recognize with admiration how much is due to the exercise of genius and that it first learns the essential combination which the glance of that genius devised but for every even the smallest act of genius it is necessary that criticism should take a higher point of view so that having at command many objective grounds of decision it may be as little subjective as possible and that the critic may not take the limited scope of his own mind as a standard the elevated position of criticism its praise and blame announced with a full knowledge of all the circumstances has in itself nothing which hurts our feelings it only does so if the critic pushes himself forward and speaks in a tone as if all the wisdom which he has obtained by an exhaustive examination of the event under consideration were really his own talent palpable as is this deception it is one which people may easily fall into through vanity and one which is naturally distasteful to others it very often happens that although the critic has no such arrogant pretensions they are imputed to him by the reader because he has not expressly disclaimed them and then follows immediately a charge of a want of the power of critical judgment if therefore a critic points out an error made by a frederick or a bonaparte that does not mean that he who makes the criticism would not have committed the same error he may even be ready to grant that had he been in the place of one of these great generals he might have made much greater mistakes he merely sees this error from the chain of events and he thinks that it should not have escaped the sagacity of the general this is therefore an opinion formed through the connection of events and therefore through the result but there is another quite different effect of the result upon the judgment that is if it is used quite alone as an example for or against the soundness of a measure this may be called judgment according to the result such a judgment appears at the first sight inadmissible yet it is not when bonaparte marched to moscow in eighteen twelve all depended upon whether the taking of the capital and the events which preceded the capture would force the emperor alexander to make peace as he had been compelled to do after the battle of friedland in eighteen o seven and the emperor francis in eighteen o five and eighteen o nine after austerlitz and wagram for if bonaparte did not obtain a peace at moscow there was no alternative but to return that is there was nothing for him but a strategic defeat we shall leave out the question what he did to get to moscow and whether in his advance he did not miss many opportunities of bringing the emperor alexander to peace we shall also exclude all consideration 
of the disastrous circumstances which attended his retreat, and which perhaps had their origin in the general conduct of the campaign. Still, the question remains the same, for however much more brilliant the course of the campaign up to Moscow might have been, still there was always an uncertainty whether the Emperor Alexander would be intimidated into making peace, and then, even if a retreat did not contain in itself the seeds of such disasters as, in fact, did occur, still it could never be anything else than a great strategic defeat. If the Emperor Alexander agreed to a peace which was disadvantageous to him, the campaign of 1812 would have ranked with those of Austerlitz, Friedland, and Wagram, but these campaigns also, if they had not led to peace, would in all probability have ended in similar catastrophes. Whatever, therefore, of genius, skill, and energy the conqueror of the world applied to the task, this last question addressed to fate remains always the same. Shall we then discard the campaigns of 1805, 1807, 1809, and say that, on account of the campaign of 1812, that they were acts of imprudence, and the results were against the nature of things, and that in 1812 strategic justice at last found vent for itself in opposition to blind chance? That would be an unwarrantable conclusion, a most arbitrary judgment, a case only half proved, because no human eye can trace the thread of necessary connection of events up to the determination of the conquered princes. Still less can we say that the campaign of 1812 merited the same success as the others, and that the reason why it turned out otherwise lies in something unnatural, for we cannot regard the firmness of Alexander as something unpredictable. What can be more natural than to say that in the years 1805, 1807, 1809, Bonaparte judged his opponents correctly, and that in 1812 he erred in that point? On the former occasions, therefore, he was right, in the latter, wrong, and in both cases we judge by the result. All action in war, as we have already said, is directed on the probable, not on certain results. Whatever is wanting in certainty must always be left to fate, or chance, call it what you will, we may demand that what is so left should be as little as possible, but only in relation to the particular case, that is, as little as is possible in this one case, but not that the case in which the least is left to chance is always to be preferred. That would be an enormous error, as follows from all our theoretical views. There are cases in which the greatest daring is the greatest wisdom. Now, in everything which is left to chance by the chief actor, his personal merit, and therefore his responsibility as well, seems to be completely set aside, Nevertheless, we cannot suppress an inward feeling of satisfaction whenever expectation realises itself, and if it disappoints us, our mind is dissatisfied, and more than this of right and wrong should not be meant by the judgment which we form from the mere result, or rather, that we find there. Nevertheless, it cannot be denied that the satisfaction which our mind experiences at success, the pain caused by failure, proceed from a sort of mysterious feeling. We suppose between that success ascribed to good fortune and the genius of the chief a fine connecting thread invisible to the mind's eye and the supposition gives pleasure what tends to confirm this idea is that our sympathy increases becomes more decided if the successes and defeats of the principal actor are often repeated thus it becomes intelligible how good luck in war assumes a much nobler nature than good luck at play in general when a fortunate warrior does not otherwise lessen our interest in his behalf we have a pleasure in accompanying him in his career. Criticism, therefore, after having weighed all that comes within the sphere of human reason and conviction, will let the result speak for that part where the deep mysterious relations are not disclosed in any visible form, and will protect this silent sentence of a higher authority from the noise of crude opinions on the one hand, 
while on the other it prevents the gross abuse which might be made of this last tribunal the verdict of the result must therefore always bring forth that which human sagacity cannot discover and it will be chiefly as regards the intellectual powers and operations that it will be called into requisition partly because they can be estimated with the least certainty partly because their close connection with the will is favourable to the exercising over it an important influence when fear or bravery precipitates the decision there is nothing objective intervening between them for our consideration and consequently nothing by which sagacity and calculation might have met the probable result we must now be allowed to make a few observations on the instrument of criticism that is the language which it uses because that is to a certain extent connected with the action in war for the critical examination is nothing more than the deliberation which should precede action in war we therefore think it very essential that the language used in criticism should have the same character as that which deliberation in war must have for otherwise it would cease to be practical and criticism could gain no admittance in actual life we have said in our observations on the theory of the conduct of war that it should educate the mind of the commander for war or that its teaching should guide his education also that it is not intended to furnish him with positive doctrines and systems which he can use like mental appliances but if the construction of scientific formulae is never required or even allowable in war to aid the decision on the case presented if truth does not appear there in a systematic shape if it is not found in an indirect way but directly by the natural perception of the mind then it must be the same also in a critical review it is true as we have seen that wherever complete demonstration of the nature of things would be too tedious criticism must support itself on those truths which theory has established on the point but just as in war the actor obeys these theoretical truths rather because his mind is imbued with them than because he regards them as objective inflexible laws so criticism must also make use of them not as an external law or an algebraic formula of which fresh proof is not required each time they are applied but it must always throw light on the proof itself leaving only to theory the more minute and circumstantial proof thus it avoids a mysterious unintelligible phraseology and makes its progress in plain language that is with a clear and always visible chain of ideas certainly this cannot always be completely attained but it must always be the aim in critical expositions such expositions must use complicated forms of science as sparingly as possible and never resort to the construction of scientific aids as of a truth apparatus of its own but always be guided by the natural and unbiased impressions of the mind but this pious endeavour if we may use that expression has unfortunately seldom hitherto presided over critical examinations the most of them have rather been emanations of a species of vanity a wish to make a display of ideas the first evil which we constantly stumble upon is a lame totally inadmissible application of certain one-sided systems as a formal code of laws but it is never difficult to show the one-sidedness of such systems and this only requires to be done once to throw discredit for ever on critical judgments which are based on them we have here to deal with a definite subject and as the number of possible systems after all can be but small therefore also they are themselves the lesser evil much greater is the evil which lies in the pompous retinue of technical terms scientific expressions and metaphors which these systems carry in their train and which like a rabble like the baggage of an army broken away from its chief hang about in all directions any critic who has not adopted a system either because he has not found one to please him 
or because he has not yet been able to make himself master of one will at least occasionally make use of a piece of one as one would use a ruler to show the blunders committed by a general the most of them are incapable of reasoning without using as a help here and there some shreds of scientific military theory the smallest of these fragments consisting in mere scientific words and metaphors are often nothing more than ornamental flourishes of critical narration now it is in the nature of things that all technical and scientific expressions which belong to a system lose their propriety if they ever had any as soon as they are distorted and used as general axioms or as small crystalline talismans which have more power of demonstration than simple speech thus it has come to pass that our theoretical and critical books instead of being straightforward intelligible dissertations in which the author always knows at least what he says and the reader what he reads are brimful of these technical terms which form dark points of interference where the author and the reader part company but frequently they are something worse being nothing but hollow shells without any kernel the author himself has no clear perception of what he means contents himself with vague ideas which if expressed in plain language would be unsatisfactory even to himself a third fault in criticism is the misuse of historical examples and a display of great reading or learning what the history of the art of war is we have already said and we shall further explain our views on examples and on military history in general in special chapters one fact merely touched upon in a very cursory manner may be used to support the most opposite views and three or four such facts of the most heterogeneous description brought together out of the most distant lands and remote times and heaped up generally distract and bewilder the judgment and understanding without demonstrating anything for when exposed to the light they turn out to be only trumpery rubbish made use of to show off the author's learning but what can be gained for practical life by such obscure partially false confused arbitrary conceptions so little is gained that theory on account of them has always been a true antithesis of practice and frequently a subject of ridicule to those whose soldierly qualities in the field are above question but it is impossible that this could have been the case if theory in simple language and by natural treatment of those things which constitute the art of making war had merely sought to establish just so much as admits of being established if avoiding all false pretensions and irrelevant display of scientific forms and historical parallels it had kept close to the subject and had gone hand in hand with those who must conduct affairs in the field of their own natural genius end of book two chapter five recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia